<laughs> Unchain yourself from this world. Join Richard Garland, Pamela Duncan, Alison Hayes in the weird world of the undead. <laughs> where a witch of a wench gives free play to her unbridled passions and jealousies. I could not tell you before, but now because I love thee, because I must help thee, I am a witch. Witch? <laughs> I am thy match, witch. You will make me a fine opponent. No, the unearthly horror of untimely death. Face burial alive by the unfrocked monk who makes merry jests while burying the undead. <laughs> Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean, and so betwixt the two of them, they licked the coffin clean. See the tortured undulations of the unwanted virgins. Experience the unbelievable. it been since you had yourself a big hot screaming ear full of forgotten horrors? <laughs> well, that's too long. Pull in close now for a crepuscular half hour or so of the Forgotten Horrors podcast with your hosts, John Woolley, Michael H. Price, and my own self, Wolf Brand Jack. <laughs> And once again, thank you, Michael H. Price and Wolf Brand Jack for that uh, introduction. You're welcome to another edition of Forgotten Horrors podcast. And this time around, it's a Roger Corman film that was allegedly shot in six days in a converted supermarket. And uh, which brings back or, or, or evokes the feeling of, of all things, a medieval setting. And uh, it's called The Undead. And it's got the Corman Stock Company, a lot of the Corman Stock players in it, Roger Corman Stock Player. He's produced and directed it and in 1957. And it owes a great deal to a series of newspaper articles, right, that became a book. Oh, yeah, the Britty Murphy case. Exactly. Is it Britty or Bridie? I've never heard it spoken, I don't think. Britty is, is correct. A lot of people just go with Bridie because it looks like that's the way it would be pronounced. Britty is short for Bridget. Okay. There you go. Well, 
Well, for those who don't know, it was a series of Denver Post articles that were written by a reporter named Maury Bernstein uh, at, because this woman who was a, um, a, a Colorado housewife, her real name was Virginia. It's T-I-G-H-E. I suppose that would be Tyg. They used a, a pseudonym for her in the Bridie Murphy thing, but he, she was hypnotized by a guy and all of a sudden conjured up this life that she'd had in the 19th century as an Irish woman named Britty Murphy. Yeah. And this case, people, it, it really attracted a ton of attention. Now I wasn't, I was only eight years old. And so I don't really remember it. I know you don't either, Michael. And Joey doesn't remember the fifties. So uh, he's out of it <laughs> too. There was a but, lot of talk in my household about that case. Yeah. Oh, there uh, was. So you did hear there about was, it. And, and I, I, I didn't, I, I think I was probably too young to grasp all the nuances, but, uh, but it certainly, it certainly registered a, 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 an impression. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I did read a lot about the case and began to understand more. Comp it was it was all all a part of that. Uh, uh, how many lives have you led? Yeah. The whole reincarnation thing and the whole uh, yeah, yeah. That, that went on and, and uh, fascinating, even though one at the time would have been too young to, to comprehend mm -hmm. the, uh, the big picture. Right. Well, it was hypnotic regression, I think was the term yeah, uh -huh. they used for it. And uh, and it, it this book came out, The Search for Brittany Murphy. And all of a sudden, Paramount announced that they were going to do a movie on the Brittany Murphy based on the book, which, of course, meant that uh, Roger Corman, as he's done throughout much of his career, was able to jump in there and do a quick picture before the Paramount picture came out, which had Teresa Wright, by the way. As, as oh, yeah, yeah, there, there were, there were uh, quite a few, if you go back and look. We've discussed that phenomenon in some, in some of the uh, mid-century forgotten horrors. Books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, Spell of the Hypnotist, a picture from the same period, also known as Fright, you'll remember that touched on the case also i've lived before uh with jock oh, yeah. mahoney yeah. the jock mahoney film that was made with universal with lee snowden was in that uh, uh who said later not to, mention that, that, not to mention that our same studios american international pictures did a hypnotic regression or atavism picture around the same time called i was a teenage werewolf well, and how about the she creature? As long as we're talking about and stuff like that, yeah. I mean, so there Definitely. you go. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was, if not pervasive, it sure was widespread. It was, and it was all based on, although a relatively short-lived thing with with Brittany Murphy, uh, but it was all kind of kind of kickstarted kind of by by that series of articles that became the book, and so. According to Charles Griffith, who wrote the, the first screenplay, uh, they decided that they would get the film out quick. It was, I think it was, it had a name that, that really, the first name for the, for the picture really evoked Brittany Murphy, had the same rhythm and everything, the something of some, somebody. And uh, then, but the thing about it is, Charles Griffith, and I know in your travels, did you ever talk with Charles Griffith, Michael? Never had the pleasure. I've admired his work since it was new and and pre presenting our generation, if you will. Yes. With ideas that were so fascinating that it didn't matter 
whether they were incomprehensible. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so we're talking, we're looking at Little Shop of Horrors, of course, that he wrote, and uh, and Death Race 2000, a little later on, Attack of the Crab Monsters, um, Creature from the Haunted Sea, one of my all-time favorite pictures. Right. And uh, Charles Griffith was an experimenter. I think he's the one that had written the first draft of the Wild Angel screenplay that made Peter Bogdanovich so crazy because there was a lot of stuff from Frog's point of view, shot Frog POV with actual like frogs. Yeah. And, uh, and that sounds like Charles Griffith. In fact, a couple of the sources that I have say that he wrote the original screenplay in iambic pentameter. And for the for the cast to do, it was all iambic pentameter, which and you can probably define it better than I can. But it's essentially iambic pentameter is is the Shakespearean thing of I like ten. Say it's a rhythmic. Yeah, it was ten syllables per line, mm-hmm. right? For the pentameter, and it's short followed by long, followed by short, followed by long. So an iambic pentameter line would be from a Shakespearean sonnet say, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Shall I compare right. thee to a summer's day? That's an iambic pentameter line. Now imagine all of the action in the undead that takes place in medieval times being written in iambic pentameter, in iambic pentameter. <laughs> allegedly, well, not a let, no, allegedly to it. Charles B. Griffith did it, and it was just a little too much for the cast. Yeah, they were not quite <laughs> up to Corman's avant-garde rhythm. No, no. And um, I'm not sure Corman, Corman, I think, lost a little faith in it as well. Uh, yeah, in many, in many ways, uh, American International, especially uh, when Corman was involved, as he largely was, was right on the edge of experimental film. They had nothing to lose. They had tiny budgets. They had casts willing to take dares, and they were making essentially American International <laughs> made art films that appealed to a to an unwashed mass. Audience. Exactly. Well, think. Of, I mean, I always think of Night Tide when you say things like that, which was shown actually shown as an art film. That's an American International second feature uh, with Dennis Hopper. But uh, Corman, from the very beginning, and a lot of people knew that if you gave the audience a certain amount of what they wanted, like later on with his nurse and cheerleader films for New World, it was, you know, having a startled pop or top about every 10 pages of script and you could be as, as avant-garde as you wanted to, right? <laughs> uh, and you could be as, as polemic as you wanted to. You could go all... And you, Corman, yeah, that was Corman's... Uh, Corman was a revolutionary. He was, absolutely he was, uh, but he wasn't quite revolutionary enough to uh, to let Charles B. Griffith ultimately get away with doing uh, doing all of the lines in, uh, in, in Ambic Pentameter. And I just, I'm, I'm looking at Joey here because we're doing this on a Zoom and I'm remembering that Joey likes for us to do a synopsis of the picture uh, before we start talking about it so people won't get so lost. So essentially, it's about a, uh, uh, a uh, parapsychologist, I suppose you'd call him, who uh, hires who, what is obviously a streetwalker in a very minimalist, foggy scene that reminds you of Edgar Homer, uh, mm-hmm. brings her into his old teacher's uh, lab or uh, classroom and regresses her. 
and she goes back to um, back to medieval times, mm-hmm. and uh, where she is being persecuted as a witch. Yep. And um, occasionally, throughout the course of the of the plot, they'll flash back to uh, to the current times. And then there's such a, at the very end, we won't give away this the story, but there's such a crazy, like anticlimactic non sequitur at the very end that you really won't believe your eyes. They give away the shock ending before they ever get to the shock ending. It's very strange. But most of this, they go back in time. And again, as I say, um, they're in this uh, converted uh, grocery store with the old, um, the old Edgar Ulmer trick of pumping it full of fog so that you can't see the, the threadbareness of it all. And you're out and you've got uh, a lot of Corman stock players in it. Bruno, v, Bruno Visota, who plays an innkeeper in it. And you've got Mel Wells from Little Shop of Horrors, who is playing the singing undertaker. Oh, yeah. Which is one of allegedly one of his favorite uh, roles. And you've even got a, a, a little bit of Dick Miller as a leper. To mention, not to mention Billy Barty. Billy Barty, who is Allison Hayes as the witch Lydia, uh, who is, I guess, the uh, the uh, antagonist in the piece. She, uh, he is her imp, and they're forever yeah. in the branches of trees and as you know, as ravens or frogs or whatever, and then changing into themselves. And Billy Barty just is, goes kind of nuts in this picture. <laughs> he's dancing around and he's just really doing he's doing some pretty crazy stuff he was the most animated little person in film from childhood right on through a distinguished advanced age and uh, the minute he walked on camera you could tell there was going to be some shaking going on. <laughs> and there was some shaking going on and speaking of some shaking going on michael i gotta tell you this is allison hayes is just, you can see in this picture, I know her big picture is like the 50-foot woman or zombies are more tossing on it, but this, in the undead, she is just smoldering. Mm-hmm. And she never, for one, and she never um, has uh, both of her uh, dress straps are up at the same time. One is always down over her shoulder mm-hmm. just throughout the entire deal. And you have called this picture a proto feminist picture very much so it's it's the kind of picture that that uh, does not apologize for its characters um shabbier aspects and uh, the the whole the whole point of uh allison hayes's and 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 pamela duncan uh, the whole point of their their presence is to present uh, outcasts as sympathetic, heroic figures. You know, that's a good point because Pamela Duncan's character, who is the, the main character, the Bridie Murphy character, uh, oh. is a streetwalker. Is obviously a streetwalker. Oh, yeah. And not and and yet she is the picture's heroine. Right. And is, is Alan, Allison Hayes' witch character literally a supernatural being? Or is she one of those persecuted women of the Middle Ages who were accused of being witches mm-hmm. in order to further a uh, theocratic agenda? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's right. So I, that's an interesting that's an interesting tack to take with it. 
I hadn't really thought of that before, but you're right. It's not, it does once again, like you say, kind of with its artistic type thing, plays with the stereotypes, doesn't it? Oh yeah, well, and it also advances uh, Corman's policy of never a dull moment on screen. Uh, so it, <laughs> it gives a lot of uh, uh, frenzy that keeps the attention and I think I think probably the the socio political overtones uh, must have gone over a lot of people's heads, mm -hmm. but they were there. And they're undeniable, and the uh, that that section of the uh, mass audience that likes to ridicule low budget pictures for being low budget pictures misses the point entirely. Absolutely, absolutely. A progressive film full of ideas. Yeah, uh, never mind. You know, and and. As far as the medievals, the sense of time and place, um, I think Corman is as much theater of the mind as he is theater of the visual. Yep, I think you're right. I think you're right. We should mention, speaking of theater of the mind, that this is narrated by the devil, too. <laughs> we should mention that. Uh, and the devil, of course, being uh, uh, played by, uh, oh gosh, Devon, Richard Devon. Richard Devon, yeah. He's the devil in this. And uh, Richard Garland, another guy who you don't really expect to see in a real superheroic role, is, is, our, is our male protagonist in this picture, too. It's full of faces from those 50s, those beautiful monster kid 50s horror movies that we all have revered and loved for so many years and and uh, and allison hayes again she she's and just to see allison hayes working and working with bruno visota there's that one line when she comes into his uh in his inn and he's getting ready to go do something and she says rest thy corpulence yeah rest thy corpulence what a great line you know, and he brilliant for some of course. It's right now. A beautiful vocabulary. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And I guess we should mention Mark Hanna too. I don't know if he's the one that actually rewrote it or if the two of them worked on this together. They worked on other stuff together. They did uh, not of this earth together, Charles Griffith and Mark Hanna. But you know, Mark Hanna also sure. did Attack of the 50 Foot Woman and for Bird Eye Gordon, the Amazing Colossal Man. And uh, I don't know if he rewrote it out of iambic pentameter or if they both rewrote it out of iambic pentameter. It's still got some really unusual uh, sounding or, or I guess, uh, the timing of the dialogue when they're in the medieval oh, yeah. time. It's well, very interesting. Uh, same, same quandary that Orson Welles faced when he did Macbeth. For Republic. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, some few years earlier, uh, the original spoken soundtrack was in Shakespearean rhythm and Scots dialect. And of course, uh, Republicans said, well, what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> and, yeah. And there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Republic sometimes, you know, it seemed like we were getting off on a little bit of a rabbit chase here, but it seems like when, whenever Republic did, except for a John Ford film, which they yeah. knew what to do with, Whenever they, uh, whenever they did a high dollar picture, they never quite knew what to do with it or an artsy kind of picture. They never quite knew, you know, the, the Ben Hecht film that, that we've talked about, whose name just completely, Joey, I know you're, what, Spectre of the Rose. Thank you. Spectre of the Rose, yes. 
yeah, Spectre of the Rose. I mean, it's basically ballet noir, and they just really I, they thought that they should do something, but they just didn't. I'm sure Herbert Yates was just like shaking his head at that, and probably Macbeth as well, even though he knew it was a prestige thing. They have Orson Welles doing it, but imagine going to Republic to make a film to make Macbeth. Oh yeah, it's just the idea of it is, you know. I, I'd like to know kind of how that how that all worked. Um, back, well, it's yeah. It's, uh, of course, it's not that much of a stretch to imagine going to American International to make an art film, right? But not calling it an art film. An art, yeah. an art film with monsters. Yeah, you get a, <laughs> you know, yeah. Exactly, you get a you get a sensational box office title, and uh, once that is established, the undead. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. oh, probably the zombies and vampires. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead, you get uh, mental hypnotic time travel mm -hmm. and Bridie Murphy uh, and regression, and also the whole notion of changing. When you change the past, you change the future. That whole deal, right? I mean, that was new then, I think, or, or fairly new outside of science fiction circles. Yeah. American International does uh, deserve a great deal better than the mystery science theater vandalism. Well, it, and, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of people who caught the undead in its mutilated MST3K version uh, came away thinking, why are they picking on this picture? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, their stock answer is because it's there, mm -hmm. not acceptable. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's you know, uh, this, is, this is the kind of picture that Bill Everson would champion as an example of the legacy of Val Luton. All right. Artistic, artistically pretentious, even even artistically pretentious, and uh, laden with big ideas. Uh, frankly, too big for a monster movie to mm -hmm. contain. And also a costume picture, which Luton liked yeah. to do too. And you, well, I, you know, Corman, Corman liked to do big stuff. He liked to do period pieces. I think in this in this particular picture, you see a foreshadowing of the Corman Edgar Allan Poe pictures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, well, once he got once he got his hands on some bigger budgets, um, he couldn't be stopped. I'd like to know if this was one of the titles that was thought up by uh, by uh, James Nicholson, because according to you know when we uh, when we got to visit with uh, Sam Arkoff at the uh, at the USA Film Festival back I don't know when it was now must have been in the nineties uh, yeah. got to have uh, got to have dinner with him which was one of the all time great uh, great dinners <laughs> of my life experiences of my life. But uh, he would talk about how James Nicholson would, I think his term was hoist a few and then come up with titles. And he used as an example, I was a teenage werewolf. And he said, I was a teenage werewolf. $100,000 picture, million dollar title. And there you go. And so you had a Luton gimmick too. That's an RKO Luton gimmick. Absolutely. Well, the, the idea of coming up with a sensationalistic title and then and then writing writing a story intelligent enough to 
sustain the uh, sustain the interest. And and, and of course, uh, like Luton, Corman at AIP also uh, avoided formula. You know, when uh, when you're you're handed the title, I walked with a zombie, and you make Jane Eyre in Haiti to mm -hmm. one example of what uh, of what Val Luton did. You exactly. know, there you go. And so there's a there's a consistent thread from from that uh, Luton period or at RKO to Corman's extended run at American International Allied Artist Film Group, mm -hmm. and eventually his own larger or mini major company. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want before we leave uh, the undead, and I really recommend it. There's a very nice print. I think it's presented by the Allison Hayes Appreciation Society or something like that on the on YouTube. Yep. And it's really a, a, a restored print. It's really nice, and uh, you can take a look at it there. But in my research uh, for uh, for our podcast this time around, I came on to the Bridie Murphy cocktail. So for those of you who like to lift a glass, if you want to make up a batch of Bridie Murphy cocktails before you sit down to watch The Undead, here's what you do. Each Bridie Murphy cocktail is a jigger of vodka, a half a jigger of maraschino liqueur, which I've never dealt with, I don't know what that is, but maraschino liqueur, obviously some cherry flavoring, shaken with crushed ice and lemon juice, and topped with a cup full of flaming rum. Mm. That's the Bridey, or Britty, I'm sorry, the Britty Murphy <laughs> cocktail. So there, there you have it. So don't, you know, don't just do that at home, kids, and don't don't get on the road after <laughs> just have a couple of Britty Murphys, watch the undead, and, and uh, then just turn in. Uh, I want to also mention that uh, we have gotten a nice uh a nice email from uh, Ron Ringhoff. Ah. And uh, he was excited to find that we were back doing, we were off, had a little hiatus for what, two or three months. And he is very mm -hmm. excited that we're, we're back together and, and, and wrote, a, wrote an email and was delighted uh, with the Vampire's Ghost because he's a big Adele Mara fan. And, and oh. so am I. And like who, you know, as we'd like to say, who isn't? Uh, not Al Morrow fan, but she was, uh, she was in she was that. A great singer too. She was, and not too many people know that. No, she had a good run with Javier Cugat. Oh, really? I didn't know. See, I didn't know she was the Cugat's orchestra. Oh, yeah. Really? Master of the Latinate rhythm. I mean, she was, she could have given Carmen Miranda a run for her money. I don't recall um, seeing her sing much in the, in the movies. Did she? No, no, she had, she kept her careers pretty well, uh, pretty well separate from one another. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, what, uh, now that uh, uh, we're kind of people are, are getting back out into the, uh, into the mainstream uh, with uh, all of the COVID seeming to recede, at least in our, this part of the world, um, what have you been working on and with that? Oh, well, folks? Funny you should mention that I, the timing is excellent. I just uh, placed a uh, sample page on our Forgotten Horrors podcast page at, at uh, Facebook uh, from a uh, new graphic novel that I've uh, been working on with a colleague called Lone Star Larceny. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically a comic book history of crime in Texas. 
Nice. Nice. Are you drawing it? You're writing it? What are you doing? Uh, doing partial fumetti pages, ah, mm -hmm. uh, finding a lot of old school uh, historic artwork that adapts well to comic book layout. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a nice thing to nice thing to have the availability of uh, artwork that depicts history mm -hmm. of criminal activities mm -hmm. in, well, in whatever part of the world you're talking about. Uh, the difference, however, here is that instead of starting, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, cheerleader mom, Henry Lee Lucas, uh, pretty obvious choices like that, we're taking it all the way back to the Spanish conquest. Ah, ah, the, uh -huh. the cats who introduced basically genocide and syphilis to the Native Americans. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Good. When's that going to be done? Exactly. When do you think it'll be? Uh, well, I'm hoping to have the uh, hoping to have the brand new material finished within oh a month or two, uh, depending on how fast. Uh, Dave Furman has contributed quite a few pages of original script. And then I'm digging out some of our um, inventory pieces mm -hmm. from, uh, well, like uh, from Taboo, Appearances in Heavy Metal, the uh, What's a Crime Story Doing in, in Heavy Metal? Well, it involves an exploding automobile. It's about as uh, Yes, I remember that yeah. story well of yours. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so it, it'll be an anthology of new material tied together with a novelistic arc. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, some classic old school stuff, including some really, really uh, rough edged uh, uh, crime stories, such as Bonnie and Clyde from the 40s and 50s. Nice. Very good. Looking forward to it. Uh, I will tell you guys that I and tell our listeners that uh, my book, uh, uh, hard, uh, not Hardball Christmas Stories, that's completely wrong, uh, 20th Century Honky Tonk, Yep. Uh, is a finalist for the Oklahoma Book Award this year. It's oh, a story of the of the Canes uh, uh, Ballroom, which is a kind of an internationally known honky tonk. Well, Bob Wills uh, certainly didn't invent Western swing there, but he certainly it was, certainly was a crucible for its uh, for his experiments with it, and uh, oh, yeah. got it all out thanks to the uh, the big clear channel radio station in Tulsa, KVOO, got it out all across the country, and. Uh, and uh, that's also the place where the Sex Pistols played their penultimate uh, show on their only American tour. So it's it's quite a place. And we're very, my co-writer Brett Bingham and I are, are very happy to be nominated. I'd like to say it's just an honor to be nominated, but this is the fourth time I've been nominated. And it's the honor's getting a little bit less each time. I'm still very honored by it, but I'd like to win the damn thing every once in a while. <laughs> Maybe at least once, right? But, and Oh, yeah, that's true. That, that, that <laughs> parallels my experience with all those bluegrass contests in the 80s. Were you, uh, oh, yeah. were you uh, also yeah. ran on those or what? Uh, I, we were the uh, we were often the crowd favorite with the judges least favorite because uh, if the the bluegrass band that I worked with and still do when we can get everybody back in, back in one city uh, was frankly too funny uh -huh. for bluegrass. A lot of people don't like their bluegrass funny. No, they no, just they, don't. the basic rule the basic rule in 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 uh, uh, bluegrass Nazism is uh, stand up straight and don't crack a smile. And I uh, don't have any drummer. 
No drummers. No drummers. No, no, so we, uh, we, we made them laugh and we made them sing along because a lot of our, uh, the band was called Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. A lot of our, uh, a lot of our albums had received expense, extensive airplay. And uh, so people were actually singing along with these offbeat, uh, oh, pardon the expression, avant-garde string band tunes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I think, I think we may have been the only bluegrass band to have been influenced by Ornette Coleman. <laughs> that says all that needs to be said. Then. But I digress. <laughs> I, I, yeah, we, we've both been bridesmaids often. Yes, yes. Well, we would like to recommend once again, folks, come on the, uh, take a look on online or on our, my website, www.johnwoolley.com. Uh, I've got a free newsletter that people can subscribe to by going onto that website. And we also got books for sale and we will be delighted for somebody to buy them and actually, or somebody else to buy them, I should say, because they're, some of the books have been doing, uh, doing well here lately. Some of the forgotten horror stuff and fantasies in the sand seems to be doing well. Our, our, uh, our latest, I guess, isn't it? Would Fantasy in the Sand be the latest? That is. Yeah. And that's yeah, the, that's, well, it is. We need to, we need to, we need to concoct something new. Gentlemen, it sounds like we better stick a fork in it for tonight. But I, once again, we haven't really decided what we're going to do next time. So it's going to be a surprise to us as well as the listeners. <laughs> Which maybe is, is probably all for the best. Oh, spontaneity is the, is, the, is the only way to go. Well, then by golly, we must be doing something right. <laughs> all right. Thank you, everybody. This is the Forgotten Horrors podcast. He's Michael H. Price. Our producer engineer is, uh, is Joey Hambrick. I'm John Woolley, and we'll be back with you again before you know it. Please let us know what you think and if there's a particular film you'd like for us to, uh, to take a look at. Thank you.